This is Unmasked, the real face of the heroes. A six-part podcast with dramatised interviews of frontline workers in one of the UK's largest NHS hospitals, St George's, in London. This is a unique insider's view of the human beings at the heart of the COVID-19 crisis. Episode 6. The security office is a little past the sweet shop in reception. It's crammed with monitors on intercom to the car parks and cabinets clanking with keys. Nigel found security manager Keith, who was too bashful to talk to me, but he found Ben, security see all and have seen everything. Working in hospital is a tougher gig than he expected, but his colleagues are like family. If you happen to want to know what the hospital leaders are doing, there's a whiteboard on the first floor of the hospital where the head of nursing, the ops manager and the chief medical officer write up the long lists of where they're dropping by next to their photos. Richard is himself a doctor and lead of all the trust doctors and I meet him regularly on my work with the juniors. There was a lot in the press about the awful possibility of healthcare rationing. The buck doesn't stop with one person, but Richard was tasked with the thinking about these scenarios. And me? Well, as the Spice Girls would say, you'll see. June the 4th, 2020. So my family been in the police, that's where I met my wife. I take the mick and I say, make sure you take your wooden spoon if we're ever driving anywhere. Obviously, essential journeys only. Uh, the sign says, well done NHS. And then I say, look, look, make sure you do that, bang the saucepan. Yeah, we, we've got a little one-year-old. I say to her, daddy's the hero. Because the police don't get any notoriety. It's only if anything goes wrong that they get blamed. Yeah, so it's quite an interesting contrast right now. Irrespective of circumstances, everyone is a hero. Now, people are doing an incredible job. I'm not knocking anybody whatsoever. I like the solidarity in the coming together of staff. That's nice. I'm the Chief Medical Officer of St George's. So that means that I'm on the trust board as one of the two clinical executive directors who are responsible for safety and quality. I'm the professional lead for the doctors in the organisation. It's a role that is integral to the operation of the executive team and of the overall management of the trust. I'm also, by background, a consultant in infectious diseases and acute medicine. People think if you're the chief medical officer, then there's a great weight of responsibility on him. Well, on one level that's true, but of course nothing really falls to one person. It can be a bit lonely sometimes, but you're not on your own. You're not on your own as a clinical leader or any other kind of leader. This Covid pandemic has been the most peculiar, most strange event. I've been commuting, obviously, into work pretty much every day, but it's been like an eclipse. Everything's been quiet and dark. It's like a zombie movie. I love tooting Broadway. It's smelly and noisy. There's always some kind of argy-bargy, and that's kind of coming back. But to have the streets empty and the sound of the birds was, well, was extraordinary. And people have been dealing with this collective trauma. When I first heard about this novel coronavirus, I guess I thought, well, that's very interesting. It'll be interesting to see how much impact that'll make. And then there was a very slow waking up as we learned more about it between December and early March. Oh my goodness, this is not something of slightly distant academic interest. This is actually a really dramatic, I'd say, once-in-a-lifetime worldwide pandemic event. The slow waking up to the fact that this involves us. We've got to actually do something about it. Well, we're friendly insecurity. That's probably the thing that kept me here made me want to join St George. I've been in the police under four years, then I come here, get a degree done, because um, the police only sponsor you to do a degree in policing, 
So I thought, well, I'll come here then, and, I, and then I can go on a high-potential development scheme. But I never left. I've been here seven years later because, yeah, there are times when you, know, you need to be very, very serious, but you can kind of have to have a bit of a warped sense of humour in our department. And, uh, yeah, it's like coming to work with a load of friends. Yeah, the lads I work with, I've, I've been on holiday with, they've come to my wedding. We, you know, we go on family days out when we're on the days off. So, yeah, that makes a massive difference. It's nice. That's some of the situations you find yourself in. I, I left the police after... Yeah, well, I, I wasn't really assaulted. I, well, I was assaulted in bits and pieces. But here, I had somebody pull a knife on me within six months of being here, and I was bitten inside of nine months. So, yeah, that was a nice welcome to St George's. Now, honestly, I thought it would be like a party in comparison to police in Croydon, but it was an absolute shambles for a while. It's, no, but it's got a lot better. That's good. I enjoy it, and work-life balance is pretty good. We work free on, then three days off, then three nights, then three off, then three days, and so on and so forth. So it suits me for now. It's, it's ideal. Not bad. I'm a paediatrician. I see children and behavioural difficulties. ADHD. I lead our ADHD service. And I'm also what's called the guardian of safe working hours for our junior doctors, which means that I work in the trust, but independently, to make sure they get their pay and training and rest. I also work for the British Medical Association as a doctor supporter, which means that I give telephone support to doctors as part of the, their well-being service. Since the COVID, I'm part of the medical examiner team, which means I help support doctors writing the certificates that go towards making the death certificates, talking to the bereaved families. And at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, that also involved going to see the patients in the mortuary. So that was a big change for me. But working with this new team has been really fantastic, really amazing. And what it's given me the opportunity to do is just to meet so many more people in the trust. Because we're in London, it absolutely turned our services upside down. I could not have imagined the type of response that St George's made, or the NHS made. We didn't know how much the public would respond if they were asked to socially distance. And we didn't know what the impact would be of lockdown. So there was a very, very intense Sunday morning when the leaders of the provider organisations in London were gathered together for an urgent conference on the anticipated need for intensive care beds in April. We had to surge. We had to increase our number of intensive care beds that would ventilate patients. We were told that the observed doubling time for the number of patients with COVID had been eight days, but now it was three days. And the knock-on implications of that was that London didn't just have to increase its capacity for intensive care patients by the original figure, but by something almost twice as big. And we were asked, please go away, come back and tell us by 4 o'clock p.m. how you're going to do it. Two things struck me. How totally and utterly professional absolutely everybody was in a beautifully calm, scientific and detached way but with the immense sense of urgency. It was astonishing that we made so many changes so quickly. And so we more than doubled our intensive care bed capacity. We turned many of our specialist wards completely over to look after COVID patients. We completely changed the way that we did infection prevention control. We moved a huge proportion of our clinical staff and repurposed a huge proportion of our clinical staff. And we did it in an astonishingly short space of time. The emergency department 
spontaneously reorganized itself into what they called red and green pathways. Uh, people who we think have COVID and people who don't. And trying to separate them in the very early stages of trying to deal with the infection prevention and control issues was very inspiring. If somebody might have said, Richard, as medical director, please would you help lead on the redesign of ED, we might have taken a year over it. But I walked down there and they said, look what we've done in the last 48 hours. The medical examiner's office is just on the corner, right near the Marks and Spencers, near the entrance of St George's, and people just come in for a chat. People come in for a biscuit and a Diet Coke, and why I'm doing this project was because of that. We have a fantastic intensivist called John, and he came in just really right at the peak of the pandemic, and he came in in his scrubs. And he had these sweaty lines on his face from the PPE, from the mask, and he just wanted to talk about the night that he'd had. It was incredibly professional, incredibly detailed, and he was using language that I'm just not familiar with because of the technical details of intensive care. And he was using terms like, and then we Cornish pasted the patient. And I thought, what's that? Turns out what that is, is this technique where orthopaedic surgeons would wrap the patient up in the sheet like a pasty and turn them over, prone, so they could be ventilated, which was a method that was found to be particularly helpful for COVID. But what struck me is that there's clinicians and people within the trust, everybody within the trust, has a story to tell about, well, to tell about their experience. And because I'm a writer, I'm interested in the way people use words, the stories that they have to tell and the words that they use. One of the most intense experiences was going round intensive care as medical director, seeing rows of patients who were ventilated and clearly extremely sick, who were not the same age profile as you might expect people in their 40s, 50s, 60s. Noticing, you couldn't help noticing, there was a preponderance of people with a BME background. And there clearly was a preponderance of men. People were very, very sick. The staff were in full PPE. I was in full PPE. It was a warm day and it reminded me how very constraining and uncomfortable PPP is. It reminds you what a stretch that is for people. I talked with a doctor in charge who said that sadly she'd had to make phone calls to bereaved families because three people had died that morning. And the most difficult and challenging things about those calls was that they, was that they hadn't seen their relative from the time they set off to hospital. This has been absolutely one of the hardest things about the pandemic. That put a memory in my head very much. Now, we're just by my wife Nan's house and all living there. She's 88. About a few weeks back, I felt like I was hungover, but I don't, I don't drink, so. Um, I went down to A&E, and they sent me home, tested positive for it. Then Nan got it as well, so she was in bed, and she didn't know she had it. She was born in 1931, and she was saying, even during the war, I wasn't confined to my bed. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so, um, only when she was better again did we tell her that she'd had it. She said, have I? Yeah, you've bloody been treating me like a prisoner. And I said, yeah, well, for good reason. I mean, telling her I wasn't going to achieve anything. I realised that I talk to doctors all the time and I talk to nurses, but just outside the door as I was going outside the ME office, one of the cleaners, who was again in full PPE, was cleaning the door and saying under his breath, this is very important, this is very important. 
And I realised that throughout the trust, everybody needs everybody else. We're like a we're like a beehive. Without the cleaners, without the porters, there's no intensive care unit. It initially, you know, I thought, well, well, how are we going to get to this story? How are we going to get these stories told? I'm interested in supporting people to write. And two years ago, two Christmases ago, I ran a show here called Operation Theatre, which was asking intensivists or neurological scientists and paediatricians to write stories into 10-minute plays. And then we performed it at the Trust, and it was fantastically exciting. Interesting just how people use their everyday experiences as professionals working within the NHS and use them to process the really difficult things that they see. And initially, that's what I wanted to do. But then I realised that the people who tell their stories are often the people that tell their stories a lot more easily. And I really wanted to hear from our security, our porters, and what I found doing these interviews and transcribing and writing with my, well, with my fantastic writer colleague, Joseph Lidster, is that everybody's story is individual. But there are so many stories, so many feelings in common. The sense of amazing teamwork and a sense of collegeness, of, of coming together, you know? The sense of loneliness sometimes as well as people dealing with our own with their own fears, but also dealing with that of their family and when their family members become seriously unwell and in one of our interviews, of course, you know, lost a close family member. The incredible bravery for going out every single day, but also the humbleness of it saying, it's just my job, this is what I do. It's a weird, weird dynamic at the moment. It's good to some respects good to see people coming together it's more like we're fighting the same fight as it were but then there's always the exception isn't there you know people who think I want to do whatever I like people that just park inconsiderately you know, I had a 78 year old come to the window and I shall use his words he said gents I think you better come out here before I kick the crap out of somebody and I said sorry so he came round and he said look mate I might be 78 years old uh, he was in the military or drug tanks or something like that I swear to god this man he said fill my arms fill me arms and I said, oh, I believe you, mate. I don't need to judge a bodybuilding competition with you. And what's happened? Right, what is this bloke? That sat there, eating a sandwich, leaning out the window of his car, parked on a zebra crossing, and his engine's on, and I've knocked on his window, told him politely, listen, mate, you need to turn your engine off. And the man said, I'm minding my own business. And he wound the window up. And this man says, now, I'm not being funny, but I'm 78 years old. I'm going to pull him out and bash him up. And I said, well, no, let's, let's not do that, mate. Let's not do that. Uh, by the time we got to the car, the bloke had gone, which is just as well. He, he just kept quoting how old he was. He boxed in the military or something like that. So to help people tell their stories, doing an interview and then asking a director to bring out the elements of this, my amazing, fantastic, brilliant colleague, Neil J. Biden, who I've worked with for so many years, we're interested in, well, not just the stories, but how stories are interconnected with each other. And then that's when the magic happens. And when we have an actor, that makes it even more real than reality itself. What I'm really impressed by is how the stories of the people at the Trust here are the stories of everybody. They reflect the stories of everybody who hasn't been working in the NHS, who hasn't necessarily been a key worker or a frontline worker. In general morals, you sort of get a variance of character, but now I think with COVID, if you're a nice person, people are really nice. Is it okay to give you an example? All right, so, so we got 
two or three phone calls on Sunday morning saying that there's a peculiar lady up here wearing a pink jumper, not dressed in any PPE, wandering onto the wards and offering to buy people and, and staff coffee. So now I feel, oh, God. Right, send one of the guys to have a look. So I sent a couple of chaps over and I said, look, approach it sensitively. This could be a lady, a, a volunteer who's just trying to help. Right, so we've gone into the coffee shop in Atkinson Morley Wing and we said, if you see a lady with a pink jumper on and hair about down to here, can you call straight away? So then she calls and says, I'm the lady in the pink jumper and the shoulder length fair you told the man in the coffee shop to look for. Is everything okay? And it turns out she's a consultant. So I don't quite know how to approach this conversation. I've delivered death messages that are easier than this. So I, 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 I don't want to say that there's this strange lady. So she, well, she says, I walked past and I, I saw a nurse crying, sat with her head in her hands, and I felt awful. So I've come downstairs and I said, I'm going to make loads of coffee. So she only popped onto the ward and chatted, does anyone want a coffee? And you know, I said, well, we just wanted to make sure you were aware of the procedure and the risks that are associated. And you know, we've gone into all the facts and things that she shouldn't do it. And she says, oh, I'm ever so sorry. And a lovely lady she was, you know, very personable. So that sort of reinstalls your faith in humanity. I spent a weekend on the acute medical take right at the peak of the COVID admissions. Just about everybody had COVID-19 clinically. And rather alarmingly and frighteningly, everything else that we would normally see on the medical tape had disappeared. We weren't seeing heart attacks. We weren't seeing people with status epilepticus. We weren't seeing people with sepsis. We weren't seeing people with stroke. We weren't seeing people with acute severe asthma. We were asking ourselves, where is everybody? Because all we're seeing is COVID. Of course, members of the public, understandably, were frightened to access medical services in case they caught COVID. But the fallout from this is that some people who needed healthcare probably weren't accessing it. That was, that felt very disturbing. It, it also struck me that the families aren't there. You're not having the conversations in the same way with groups of people. You're not taking families away to rooms to talk. We were phoning, but it feels different. The wards had a strange quietness about them. Weekends in a hospital are normally teeming with visitors. And it made me reflect on how much stimulation our parents are actually getting because an awful lot of getting better after an illness is about motivation. Getting out of bed and doing things and getting your body and brain working again. And all that's more challenging if your family can't come to see you. The other thing that I was really keen to represent is the people that this has affected, which is, has been older people, it's been younger people, but particularly those of a BAME background. And that's been an extraordinary pressure, an extraordinary trauma for those communities. Our workforce is hugely diverse, and what I really wanted to hear was from, from our colleagues who had lost colleagues. This has had an explosive effect on people's lives and I'm really honoured to have interviewed people who've been personally affected by colleagues who've died and also talking to a patient as well and the effect that this has had on him. I think we have a responsibility to support all of our colleagues and support everyone, again, out in the community and listen to their voices. 
And I hope that by actually listening to people's words and not put words into their mouth, which is what writers do, but actually listen to their words, that we will be able to hear more about what people have to say. Ah, there are good days and bad days in every job. Um, I couldn't do the front line watching people die every day. You know, I'm a bit of an emotional mess when it comes to death. Now, I can see most things, but if I know somebody in any sort of remote capacity, that, nah, that sort of stuff really affects me. The fact that people see that every day, day in, day out, patients that they care for one day and then die the next. Oof. I mean, I, I, I don't know what the true impact of that sort of stuff is going to be. The one thing, though, I think, talking about the collective trauma and thinking about supporting people, was that I hadn't really realised the impact that this has had on me as well. I did realise when I was able to go and see my sister this weekend as the lockdown restrictions are being lifted and I cooked her a cake. And the cake was an absolute disaster. I absolutely bodged it. My younger son said, uh, shouldn't there be some air in that cake? And then that evening, I spent the whole evening feeling grumpy and tetchy and sad. And I realised how hypervigilant I've been in the last few weeks, how much fear I had had of failure, terrified of making mistakes phoning the families of the bereaved as well. It, it's such an important call to make, and I've reflected and worried that I've said the wrong things. I don't think I have, and that cake just made me think of all the things I could have done wrong. So I made another cake, and it was fine. The difficult ethical decisions one has to make, it's still a challenging thing. Essentially, we had to plan for how we look after people if the demand for potentially life-saving care outstrips our ability to supply it. It was entirely reasonable of us to think that moment might come. Whatever our society has been used to before, we do have to be prepared to work out what seems right and what seems wrong. If we ever get to the awful position that we've not got enough health care to go round, and there have been countries who have been faced with that situation. It's better to have done some forward planning and try and work out what is a just and fair approach. And also to try and make sure that whatever approach you decide on is something that would resonate with most ordinary people in your society. It isn't simple. And goodness, lockdown had the right effects because our fellow citizens did what we asked of them. We were not overwhelmed. I feel cautiously optimistic. All oh, right, we had two brothers, uh, their mum and Nan. They both died four days apart. The mum was very ill when these lads turned up. So what, what on earth's going on with my mum? I need to see my mum. And, and, and they're throwing policy down their throat. You're not allowed to see your relatives. No one's allowed in. Which I appreciate in principle, but in, in practice, there's a way of delivering that message. Right, and then the police turn up. They, I mean, they couldn't give a monkeys if you say you're going to arrest them. They don't care. They're here because their mum's dying. Mum, mum's not part of the picture. She's everything. They've lost granny on Tuesday. Now they're being told they're going to lose mum on Friday. So, yeah. Well, it's the first time in a while I've given a grown man a cuddle. This guy was about six foot four. Yeah, he was absolutely huge. Crying like a baby. It's probably important to admit that for a lot of us, COVID-19 has been exceedingly interesting. So... I can't say that I would have chosen this to happen because it's been a tragedy for thousands and thousands of families. It's been an awful strain on a lot of people and it's created healthcare difficulties for people that never had COVID-19 and didn't access healthcare. 
But if, like me, your clinical background is infection, but you're also very interested in how service is delivered, then it is probably one of the most interesting challenges of your career. So in that sense, although it's very intense and it can be stressful, it isn't all about stress. Is also about using your professional training and feeling your job is meaningful. A number of doctors and nurses have said, almost with a slight sense of guilt, that they've actually found it quite stimulating. Perhaps it is best not to feel guilty about that and admit that it, all it means is you're reinforcing your pride in the career that you chose and that you're interested. Well, since coronavirus, I've found myself working a lot more. Because my partner is working from home and her nanny's there, you know, childcare is permanently available. Um, so I'm, you know, well, instead of us both just sitting home, I thought I might as well go to work. So I'm working more, trying to save some money, do the house up and stuff. I mean, it's not a great deal else to do, is there? I think it's good to switch off when you can't do any more and when nobody's asked you to do any more. Covid work could expand into the weekend or the evenings, and certainly did. But if you're not at work, it's a very good habit to try and switch off. Fortunately, I've got a small roof terrace that gets the sunshine, and that's actually been a major part of my mental health and well-being in the last few months. I've done lots of reading of novels as well over this time. It's strange, but in lockdown, what else can you do? Ah, the clapping. I have loved, I've loved sticking my head out of the front door, waving to people over that way, you know, people I didn't know, people in the window over there. I know of Dave and his wife over the road, Estelle next door. There's been a bit of clapping towards us, but we clap back at people. It came to an end last week and I was just walking down the road after a long day just as the clapping was started and I kind of, I did it. I, I did it too. <laughs> I did. I, I walked down the street going, thank you, thank you. But it's for everybody. The person who enjoyed the clapping the most is my greyhound, Trudy, who's a retired racer. So she came out, heard the applause, and thought she'd won a race. <laughs> so that was amazing. On Thursdays, loads of the staff gather outside A&E. The police turn up as well, and they put the sirens on, and there's the blue lights, left, right, and centre. Now, I, think, I like that. Yeah, I think it's nice. My brother-in-law is a copper in Lambeth, and to him it's a joke. Heroes, heroes, you're sitting there doing nothing, he just takes the mick. So I go on one of these websites that you design a T-shirt, and I get a mock-up with my face all over it. I, I didn't get it printed, but I would have done for a laugh. And he, and he says, Ben, can you let me know if you're a 1X or a 2XL, mate, because I want you to wear it. I want people to know why you're clapping. <laughs> that is nice, and it seems to be carrying on, doesn't it? So, yeah, it's nice. The first time... The first time I heard it, I'd forgotten that's what it was and thought, what's all that racket? And then having the absurd feeling one day when I was out in my street that everybody was visibly clapping and that's, if I joined in, it would be absurd because I'm not clapping myself. No, I didn't join in, it would be absurd. So I clapped with everyone else. But I think it's a, a very good way of showing that people appreciate the NHS. I think that's important. I saw it as a very positive thing. I'm proud of the individuals who had their professional lives turned upside down. Everybody just got on with it, embraced the challenge and worked together. It was really, in terms of the engagement of the St George's staff, an overwhelmingly positive experience. 
COVID's been a tragedy, but it has its positive side. To see how our colleagues rose to that challenge was amazing. My job really was to try to be a slightly distant conductor of the orchestra, to put the key questions to people with expertise to come together and share their thoughts. I'm sure I could talk for a long time, but those are the kinds of things that spring to mind. I had two boys who were teenagers, and I'm lucky they are the best, you know, the funniest. They taught themselves how to play the piano, and the other one has taught himself how to play the guitar. And my husband has started a PhD, so there's been a lot of constructive stuff, way more constructive than I've been. And I'm very conscious that we, as a family, have been very lucky in as much as we haven't been personally affected by the virus. I think I might possibly have had it, I'm not sure. I'm going to get an antibody test, but I spent a good few weeks being wiped out by something. I get out of bed, walk the dog, have a shower, go back to bed. We all had a bit of a cough and a cold. My husband, who's also a doctor, got swabbed. That was negative. So we all came in and out of quarantine, and then two weeks later I was zapped out completely. I came back to work after seven days, and by the end of that time there was no point in getting a swab. That's the advice I got. But something had happened to me. I think a lot of people have had that. That really wiped me out. I'm, I'm somebody who reads and chatters. I mean, you never guess. <laughs> and I couldn't read. I was just sat on the sofa with hot flushes and Candy Crush saga. And, and then I learned how to bake. I've been caking. Yeah, I've been caking bakes. <laughs> and I have totally nailed a buttermilk lemon pound cake. Mmm. My worry about this sort of situation is because it's 100 miles an hour, no-one's actually paying attention to the... You know, no-one's stopping and seeing. When you, when you sit down at the end of the day and you think, oh, bloody hell. You know, this bloke lost his mum and his nan. It really, it really does affect you. It really does. My worry is this is going to have far more of an impact on people than we can see on a surface level. It's certainly interesting times, yeah. Few people I've worked with are very uncomfortable with this analogy that this is war and battle and they've said we're not soldiers and they don't want to be addressed as such. I think for some of my colleagues it's definitely felt like it's, uh, it helps because I like then it's I a like coming to work. I like coming to work before COVID and I still think that there is a sense of purpose for us and coming to work is better than sitting at home. That's why I feel sorry for people who are Come on with it first. You write this M&M. &M. Quite often, the other units ask, is, is George's quiet? Is not much going on? Uh, it's not because of that. We've got plenty of sick patients here. It's just that the ones we want to bring are stable. So that happened yesterday. Uh, one patient getting quite unstable. I mean, we just went around the corner because they found another one in the same place. So if I'm perfectly honest, I think the use of the word hero and angel, I really struggle with. I've worked here for the last seven years. We were kind of living in this separate universe from normal life when I spoke um, to my friends and family no, outside. It's it's optimism. People are kind so of falling into the routines, you know, arguing about rotors, things like that, rather than breaking down in tears. Conversations with colleagues. You've helped me. It's helped me kind of balance my mind. The concentration of death and thinking about death the concentration of breaking bad news. None of it was new, it just all happened in such a concentrated way. Medical school seems so long ago. I'm 26, I qualified in August. Uh, 
this year, so, so, so this is my first job. We have a great team. Manager, deputy manager, trainee, assistant, and me. If anyone needs anything, we will sit around to talk if it needs to be. I spent more time here than with my family. We have each other's back. And if you say you don't feel in the right headspace one day, you can go to someone and ask if it's all right to have a chat. St George's is a place of love. We're here longer than we're home. We're here to look after each other because that's what work is all about. You've got some generous donations of Easter bunnies and chocolate, some really nice chocolate, which is far too nice for me. He's in Peru and he says, Lana, you don't look very nice. You need to get your eyebrows done. They're bushy. Most of the team that I gained have been here for a long while. And for me to be new and to be welcomed to a team that is so lovely, yeah, I think... I can't say any more than that. When you're a porter, so you kind of stick out. If someone's there, doesn't know what they're doing, they'll come and find a porter. We do see patient family members. If there's any way that we can try to help, we do. I know especially... We celebrated the lives of our colleagues. We talked about them, what they meant to us. They've been here for years, what, what they meant for us. And everyone spoke just a little bit about how they met them. ICU dressed up. And you could just see the patients break down and it just kind of hit home to him the importance of it. So we've been trying to advise them, give them some guidance and support, put them in the right direction to let you know that. The clapping, I really appreciate it. Everyone is really appreciating the hard work that we do here. And in the evenings when I'm going home, I can hear all that clapping. I forget that they're clapping for me. I'm making a difference, but at the same time, the nurses are the one on the front line and the doctors. And I'm like, oh man, it's just a menial kind of job. But it's not. It's not a menial kind of job. Because everyone was well, we didn't see it anywhere, but let's shield everyone. In hindsight, you know, I wish we did it even a week or two earlier. He had this young family that had come. We could hear on the phone the baby crying and the mother screaming. The wife just wanted to see her husband. And that's when the reality hits in. It could happen to him. In my mind, there was a conspiracy because, you know, the oxygen that they give you, right? You've got the oxygen and they used to shove those two bloody things up your nostrils and when it ran out, it used to get really, really hot. So I would tell them, they said... But everyone came in and helped. Helped us out from all sorts of, like, you know, background. Working from different specialities. There's that poem. I think her name is Catherine O'Mara. And she wrote it around 1919, and it became popular during the Spanish flu pandemic. And it's incredible. It's talking about people suffering, but actually it's like... You've been in the storm, in this hurricane, and all of a sudden, you've come out. And everything's calm, and you see this I had a wicked one, and the best one was from Carlos. <laughs> so I said, I sent you a picture. So I said, Carlos, stand over there. So he stood over there. About a few weeks back, I felt like I was hungover, but I don't, I don't drink. So um, I went down to A and E, and they sent me home, tested positive for it. Then Nan got it as well, so she was in bed, and she didn't know she had it. She was born in 1931, and she was saying, even during the war, I wasn't confined to my bed. This is ridiculous. 
So, I um, honey, won't you better at any point to just outside the door as I was going outside the ME office, one of the cleaners, who was again in full PPE, was cleaning the door and saying under his breath, this is very important, this is very important. And I realised that throughout the trust, everybody needs everybody And, uh, yeah, it's like coming to work with a load of friends. Yeah, the lads I work with, I've, I've been on holiday with, they've come to my wedding, we, you know, we go on family days out. Somebody might have said... Richard, as medical director, please would you help lead on the redesign of ED? We might have taken a year. But I walked down there and they said, look what we've done in the last 48 hours. I'm proud of the Which I appreciate in principle, but in practice, there's a way of delivering that message. Right, and then the police turn up. They, I mean, they couldn't give a monkeys if you say you're going to arrest them. They don't care. They're here because their mum's dying. Mum, mum's not part of the picture. She's everything. Everybody's story. There are so many stories, so many feelings in common. The sense of amazing teamwork and a sense of collegeness, of, of coming together. You know. Unmasked is a Serena Hayward production. Matthew Waterhouse was Dr. Richard Jennings. Tracy Ann Oberman was Dr. Serena Hayward and Stephen White was Ben Miller. It was written by Serena Hayward and Joseph Lidster. It was directed by Neil J. Biden. Production assisted by Sarah Weatherall, Davy Biden-Oates, Helena Copsey, Glenn Webb, and Holly Conley, with original music by Fanna Otter. In association with St George's Charity and St George's NHS Trust. Please support the NHS Charity and Actors Benevolent Fund on Just Giving. For more information, please visit unmasked.com dot org dot uk